behalf of Leidenberg Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining me today to discuss year-end tax and trust planning is Attorney Marty Shankman from New Jersey. Good morning, Marty. Hi, Bob. How are you? Marty, um, you know, it's like T-minus 85 days, so so we are uh, we're, we're getting close, and we need to put the best ideas forward uh, for our colleagues across the country that are working with clients right now. I know it all starts with the $5,120,000 gift, generally to a GST-exempt trust. What are you seeing in your practice? Um, and I know you talk to people all over the country. What's your pulse for what people should be doing uh, with the $5 million? Let, let me, let me um, start with something that's going to be very basic and kind of obvious for Lissy uh, uh, subscribers, but I, I think it's kind of important. What you just said is the message too many clients are getting. They get pre-focused on $5 million, $5 million, $5 million. And as a result, a lot of clients that have fairly significant wealth, but for which a $5 million transfer is out of the question, don't consider planning. And we've had a number of people that we've reached out to that we think should plan that, well, gee, I'm not giving away $5 million. No one ever told you to. For a lot of older clients, infirm clients, physicians and others worried about asset protection planning, gay, lesbian, non-married couples, there's a unique opportunity to make gifts that can be far less than the $5 million. And I think while all of us as practitioners keep talking about the $5 million number, let's not forget there's an awful lot of clients below that radar screen, especially in the decoupled states where you can get an older client, just put something into a, 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 an irrevocable trust or even just make a simple outright gift and save the, the state of state tax. So just as a preliminary comment, I, I think there's another chunk of client base out there uh, that needs to be reached and needs to be educated because I find that that's the, the most uninformed and uh, least act, at least active part of the client base. And while we all love focusing on the bigger transactions, we shouldn't forget the smaller ones. As far as what I think needs to be done, and again, I know this is going to all be obvious for, for the sophisticated uh, Lissy uh, subscriber, I'll, I'll just kind of state the obvious. I think that the, the sort of the model template of 2012 planning is to set up some type, and we can talk in a minute about it, but some type of irrevocable trust so that you can shift value out of their estate Unless there's a reason to the contrary, that trust should probably be set up as a grantor trust because, as everybody knows, President Obama in his Green Book proposed um, changing the law on grantor trust so that grantor trust will be included in the client's estate, and that would eliminate this phenomenally useful technique. So setting up a trust as a grantor trust to try to grandfather grantor trust status is hugely important. Virtually all these trusts should be set up unless there's a reason to the contrary as a dynastic trust that should go on for an extended period of time uh, to which GST exemption, if available, should be allocated. Uh, President Obama has proposed capping the term, as everyone knows, to 90 years for which you can allocate GST exemption, so that if you do not get a trust set up today and make an allocation, if you do it in the future, assuming whatever the exemption is is a separate issue, but even if you do it in the future, at year 90, half of the assets in that trust could be lost to uh, a GST tax, it will devastate the ability to transmit wealth down multiple generational lines. So virtually every trust that we set up today, to repeat, should be a grantor trust as well as it should be a dynastic trust. One of the things that we're doing, and I think the recent Illinois case is, 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 is uh, perhaps an illustration of even still why we should do it, which may be kind of a different message than many people are taking home, but I think that if you're setting up uh, a, a trust with significant wealth, and, and I think the trust that we are all setting up this year uh, tend to be far larger um, and far greater percentages of clients' wealth than ever before, um, I would favor setting up the trust in one of the uh, better trust-favorable jurisdictions, uh, 
I guess, in alphabetical order, not to offend anybody, Alaska, Delaware, uh, Nevada, South Dakota. Um, I have seen no trust set up really in, in some of the other jurisdictions, and I don't mean to uh, disrespect them by not mentioning them, but, but the trust we've seen tended to be in those four jurisdictions. But I think that if there's an ability to get a trust into one of those jurisdictions, given the more favorable laws, given how aggressive um, those states and their, their, their uh, bar, uh, in terms of lawyers not drinking, their bar is on trying to keep current with changes uh, in developments in the law, that it, it really behooves us, given the wealth being transferred, to set up the trust in those states. So to summarize, I think that the typical transaction we're seeing is an irrevocable trust that's grantor in nature, dynastic in nature, which ESD exemption allocated, set up in one of, one of the four uh, trust-friendly states. So, Marty, we, we go to one of those states, we'll typically set up a dynasty trust, we're going to naturally have to file gift tax returns eventually and allocate GST exemption. But the question becomes, what do we transfer into that trust? And I guess, is the preferred method, if it's available, to transfer discounted property and then to use some type of laundry clause or other overflow vehicle to protect ourselves against an audit? Yes and no, and it depends. The, 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 the assets transferred in, and I'm going to leave aside that discussion of uh, the ability to transfer a promise because that's something that uh, uh, I'd rather not address. But the, the assets that we see transferred range from securities to business interests to real estate interests and so on. And the selection of assets depends on a raft of factors. What we try to do where the clients uh, can, but obviously we have to kind of short-circuit it quite quickly this year, is we like to see a, a sort of a financial plan so that we have some basis to show what can go into the trust without um, the client really needing access to it, so that you're really transferring uh, a nest egg into uh, uh, some of the trust. And, and we'll cover this a little more when we talk about the different types of trust that we see being used. Um, but, you know, if it's a vacation home or real estate, it has to be put into an LLC if you have an uh, asset uh, uh, in one state and you're going to use one of the trust-friendly states that's a different state, you're not going to have real estate owned in another state. So it's going to have to have the, the real estate placed into an LLC first. And for most commercial property, uh, most clients already have their assets in real estate. Occasionally you find one that hasn't. So you're going to transfer um, the entities that own the business or real estate interests or perhaps securities directly. Um, the laundry clause, that becomes a valuation issue. I, I think everyone's kind of familiar with laundry, but... Uh, just to sort of summarize it for maybe those that, that aren't, um, if you're transferring securities, you know what the value is. You get the statement, and you can see it. There's no issue on the value. So if the client wants to transfer $5 million and go close up to the edge of the $5.12 million exemption that they have, they can do that with, with pretty comfort, pretty high level of comfort because you know what the value is. If you're transferring interests that are 30% of an entity, a real estate LLC, you have the issue of what's the real underlying real estate worth, what's the entity interest worth, what are the discounts on the entity, and so on and so forth. So you, you have some real valuation issues. We're seeing most clients step back from the $5.12 million and leave a cushion in case there's an audit, and that's one, one source of protection. The other source of, of, of protection is really getting a full-blown and proper appraisal from a reputable firm, which many clients do, and... The issue with that in part now is given the compression of time before you're in, can you still do that? Uh, in the last week alone, one of the major national uh, appraisal firms we work with informed me that they will no longer take new appraisal assignments for this year. 
Um, in New Jersey, we had a, a, we have a major transaction in process, and we we're trying to get a real estate appraisal firm that we've worked with before, and they also told us they'd love to do the work, but they are too backed up, and they will take no more work this year. So one of the practical problems we're all going to face, and this is going to get worse and worse as the year goes on, is can you even get an appraiser to talk to you, or are they too booked? Now, how do you address the issue if you're giving this 30% of a real estate LLC and you think it's worth $4.8 million, but you're not sure? Is the 30% discount too high, too low, or, or just right? You know, kind of like the three bears in the porridge. Well, a number of cases, Petter, Christensen, and so on, had a concept that if you made a gift of, uh, call it $4.8 million of the interest in this property, and if the value were greater than that, the excess value would go over to a public charity, then that would avoid the gift tax issue. And many of us have um, probably used the same concept with private foundations where a client was uncomfortable giving a private equity interest to a public charity. Some practitioners have gone a step further and used um, uh, marital trust, Q-tip trust, uh, or zeroed-out grats as sort of the vehicle or receptacle for the excess value if there's a gift tax audit. Um, we've seen combinations where you've combined all these different techniques and had sort of a different tranches of gift overs. More recently, the Wandry case came out and said, you can simply use a formula saying, I am giving $4.8 million of interest in this real estate LLC, and that's it. So if the IRS comes in, no, I didn't give 30% of the LLC that you're now saying is worth $6 million. I gave $4.8 million worth of the LLC. The variable becomes the interest in the entity. That's all I transferred. The IRS obviously has to have uh, a strong objection to this because it would uh, emasculate the, the benefits of any audit. If they find an issue and everyone used a wandry clause, there'd be nothing left on audit. Uh, the IRS has, to no, no one's surprise, appealed the case. So where are we on wandry? I, I believe that given the line of cases with the excess pouring into a charitable-type uh, structure, that most people are probably reasonably confident that that type of an approach would work. The Wandry case, I hear views all across the board. Uh, some people will say, uh, why not put a Wandry clause in every deal? Why not? Other people I've talked to say, I wouldn't want to use a Wandry clause because it's a red flag for an audit and it's already on appeal. And other people use them sort of selectively. So it's, it's sort of all across the board. Um, so the bottom line is when you're trying to use up the, the exemption amount, you have to deal with the issues, the practical issues of can you get a good appraisal? Is there time? Can you use a value adjustment clause? If so, what type do you use? How much security is there to it if the client won't give it to a public charity, which we find pretty common? Uh, what's left? Will laundry work? Can you use a zero-out graph? What do you do? So, Marty, just come back, though, to the spousal access trust. I mean, so many clients are worried about not having enough money. Um, typically, it's the husband who's 80, his wife is 75, and he says, you know, what if my wife lives to 95 years old? What do I do? Um, our response is, well, let's put your property in trust for your wife, your children, your grandchildren. Um, what are we seeing there? And, you know, what do you think about all these issues surrounding the reciprocal trust doctrine? Um, I think about a lot of them, and I think there's more issues than just that. Let me, and I know that, again, for Lissy, uh subscribes, it's basically, let's just describe the technique, but then let's talk about some of the issues, and I think the reciprocal trust doctrine is but one of them. Um, lots of clients are really uncomfortable making a gift to a trust for descendants only, because just as you described, they want to have access potentially to the money. And there's really two ways you can get access 
to the money. You can use a, a, a spousal lifetime access trust uh, slat. It's really akin to it's an intervivos bypass trust. It's a lifetime version of the bypass trust set up in the will for sur- surviving spouse and kids. But there's a very important exception to that that we're going to talk about or issue with that. Um, that's one sort of uh, range of approach. The other approach is to set up a self-settled domestic asset protection trust where the, the, the cl- both spouses and all descendants are beneficiaries, and yet you have issues with that, especially in light of the recent Illinois case. What does that mean? And I don't think that means the death knell of self-settled trust. I think it means, like a lot of the SLP cases, you have to plan and implement and operate more carefully. But let, let's go back to this last for a second. So let's call husband sets up a trust for wife. And, and where you see these two concepts is, and I hate the phrase, but let's call it the mid-wealth range, where somebody has mega-wealth. And again, I can't define the terms because it depends on the client's perception and their lifestyle and the, their budget relative to their wealth. If the client has the insufficient wealth to be confident they can just give away a huge chunk of millions, you have to use one of these trusts. But then the more connection, the more benefit the client gets from the trust, it's sort of on a continuum. You know, if you just give the way the money completely to a trust for the kids and you're not a fiduciary, your spouse isn't a fiduciary, you have no rights to be beneficiaries and you're prohibited from being a beneficiary, clearly you got to complete a gift. And you can go then to the slat, then you can go to the DAPT as you move down the continuum you know, there's more and more risk of a challenge or of an issue. And as you add more and more ties or connections or benefits that you can uh, uh, obtain from the trust, so much more so. Now, on the slab, it sounds simple, and I think a lot of people are going to get in trouble because they're assuming it's simple. So a husband could put, say, a million bucks or two million bucks in a trust for wife and kids, allocate GSD exemption, maybe set it up as a grantor, you know, have it as a grantor trust, then what? And I think that then what becomes very critical. Um, in many cases, if the husband puts a million bucks or two million bucks in a trust for the wife, the wife may want to do a similar trust for the husband because this way if wife dies first, husband at least is a beneficiary of his trust and you make distributions from both. And you correctly identified one of the many issues that affects that kind of planning where you have sort of dual spousal access trusts. You have the issue of the reciprocal trust doctrine. And I, I've read a lot of commentaries on that where people have suggested if you have different trustees and different powers of appointments, you should be fine. But if you really go back and read the case law, and bear in mind that a lot of the information that out, is out there is on, on private letter rulings, you've got to be a little more careful. And I think also historically where some of the case law developed, we never had the scope and volume and dollars going into these sort of paired spousal access trusts that we do in 2012. So I think a little more caution may be in order than some are saying, and I know some very bright practitioners that have poo-pooed the issue, but I'd rather be more careful and draft more differences into the trust, if possible, than to find that the client is facing an issue down the road. One of the things that we've done to make these spousal access trusts more secure, I believe more secure, is we've set them up in different uh, DAT jurisdictions. And... If we have, for example, two spouses in New, New, New Jersey, we may set up one in Alaska and one in Nevada. This way, if there's an issue of the, the grantor spouse having some retained right or having done something, we're in a DAP jurisdiction, which gives us a more favorable response. We not only have different tr- institutional trustees, but we have different state law. I don't know that everyone would want to go so far. Certainly, a lot of clients would not be comfortable from a financial perspective going to that degree. But I, I think people need to be very mindful that when they're setting up um, spousal access trust in tears, 
uh, of some of the risks that are out there. And I'd like to point out a practical risk, which has nothing to do with what we as practitioners draft, but kind of what is implemented. Let, let me give you an example. Husband sets up a trust for wife and puts $2 million in it. Wife then gets a distribution from the trust. These distributions cannot really be used for her primary care and support because then they're discharging the husband's legal obligation under state law to support his wife. Most trusts will probably have somewhere in the boilerplate a provision, and I think most of us as drafters always were thinking of the kids. You know, I don't want to discharge an obligation to support my kid in a trust, so the kind of the boilerplate may include this. So even if the boilerplate includes a prohibition on distributions to discharge your legal obligation to support, what does the wife do when she gets a distribution out of the trust? I think what most spouses, most clients are going to do is they're going to take that distribution and deposit it in the joint checking account over which both spouses have check writing privileges. So if a husband sets up a, a, a trust for wife, a slack, Wife takes the distribution and puts it in a joint account, and then husband uses funds from that account to pay all the utility bills and home expenses and signs the checks. Do we have an issue? So I think that, that the, the mere planning on the front end that I believe most of us is, have focused on just because of the pressures to get deals done is not going to address enough because I think the operation of these trusts could present some very interesting issues. And if the IRS simply came back in a few years and said, we're auditing this trust on, on husband's death, and gee golly, all the distributions from this trust were put into a joint account, paid basic living expenses to the wife, they were signed by a husband who was not a beneficiary, what gives? I don't know that that'll be the death knell of a trust, but I think that it points out that we have never before had this level of compressed wealth transfers in history, and just like we're all struggling to deal with the challenges today, like the reciprocal trust doctrine, and do you use adapt state, not adapt state, what do you do in light of the Illinois case, I think we'll have a whole new set of challenges next year. And I apologize for jumping, but two thoughts came to mind uh, that I just want to get out before I forget. One, if you do the reciprocal trust, so each spouse puts a million or two million in a trust for the other, even if you survive the reciprocal trust doctrine, look what you might have just done. So now next year, if we end up with a million dollar exemption, both spouses have no exemption left. You should think before you set up two reciprocal uh, slats or intervivalist bypass trusts whether you'd be better off just setting up one. Not only do you avoid the reciprocal trust doctrine, but let's say we do end up with a million-dollar exemption next year. At least one spouse has that million left. If both spouses set up $2 million flat today, you got zero exemption next year. And another quick thought, going back to the Wandry case, and I'm sorry to bop, but it just kind of popped into my head because I had a conversation with a big accounting firm this morning about it. If you do a Wandry clause, what do you guys report on the 1065K1? A little bit of a rhetorical question. If you simply report the, the um, allocations based on the percentage, but the deal with the laundry clause is that you gave a dollar figure, you don't really know when you're filing the income tax return for the partnership, say, that it, uh, the LLC was given in 2012, subject to the laundry clause. You don't know what the real interests are. I, I'm almost thinking that you need to um, uh, transfer a um, uh, you have to put a um, caveat or statement on the income tax return indicating that these percentages are estimates and they may be adjusted by a clause. Uh, even the laundry case itself kind of criticized the taxpayers for not being consistent on the gift tax return with what the laundry clause used in the transfer documents had. And maybe we should take that caution a little further and indicate the same caveat on the income tax returns. So just, just another couple of thoughts.
Well, Marty, we've, we've covered a lot of ground here today, and on behalf of Lineberg Information Services, I, I just want to thank you for joining us. You have a lot of wisdom and insight, and I wish you and everyone else the best of luck in the next two and a half months taking care of our clients. Um, please join Marty and I for part two of this, Strategies to Use in a Low-Interest-Rate Environment. Again, on behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler, and thank you for joining us today.